Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we try to take the mystery out of running an independent record label. And this episode today is a part of our longer series on sync licensing, where we're trying to take the mystery out of sync licensing and how to get in touch with music supervisors and how to have your music played on TV shows and in movies. And today's interview is with an actual music supervisor. It's kind of the culmination of this series because the music supervisors are sort of at the top of the heap really in this industry because they're the gatekeepers to what gets played often on TV shows or in movies. And so I know that you've been probably waiting for this episode to happen. And we've also had some great insights from sync agents. And we've also talked with people in the advertising world. But it's great today to talk with Julian Drucker, who, let me tell you what he's worked on. Uh, he's worked on uh, Apple TV shows like The Shrink Next Door. He's worked on uh, 911 Lone Star. He's worked on American Horror Story and Love Island and The Handmaid's Tales, The Politician on Netflix. So many great shows. And today's interview is just jam-packed with insights. And I mean, listen, we get access to a music supervisor, right? And so that's one of the things we've always wanted. We want to ask them questions that relate specifically to independent record labels and independent artists who are trying to get their music on TV shows and movies like the ones that Julian has represented. Today's episode is part of our longer series on sync licensing, and you can find out all about this series and all about the resources we have on sync licensing by going to otherrecordlabels.com sync. And I'm excited to announce that we are just uh, soft launching our new micro course on sync licensing. And this is taught by our friend Katrina Fry, who works, who owns and operates Loretta Records. And they work primarily in the sync world. And they've done some incredible placements with brands like Peloton, NFL, Uber Eats, and on shows like Shameless and Empire and Superstore. So this is a great course. It's a micro course we're just launching right now. And you can find out more about that by going to otherrecordlabels.com slash courses. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Yeah, I was actually really curious about the fact that you worked on Handmaid's Tale. And I want to ask you about that. I'm a huge fan of the show. I think it's yeah. so great. And yeah. um, it. I think my fandom probably happened because of them filming in my neighborhood. And there was actually, um, I, I've met Moss before and I met the director, Mike. And oh. I, it was, it was, a, it's, it was so cool. They set a house on fire, like, like a fake house, like really close by. And, oh my goodness. and one time I got cut off, like really bad cut off coming down my street by like one of those black handmade SUVs with like the creepy oh Gideon logo. <laughs> that's that's enough to give you a nightmare. Honestly. Yeah, that's it's creepy. Stuff. Well, actually, super creepy. I wasn't familiar with the, the, the story. And my wife and I were driving home one day and there, it, they were literally filming this scene in the first season where like all the handmaids walk down the street and there's all these yeah. mansions in the back. And that's like on this route that we drive home, like on these one way streets. And so we saw these like red gowns, like walking down the street. We we're like, that's eerie. And like, yeah. we're like, for sure, that's a horror movie or something. And so, right. <laughs> and then we saw the ad at the Super Bowl. And, and uh, anyway, I've been a fan ever since. But I'm curious, like that, the music on that show, we're kind of diving into like a, a, a heavy question, but like the music sure. on that show is actually quite polarizing to critics like some people love the the sinks and other people's were more critical of it to be honest i loved when like there was an upbeat song that would like a familiar pop song that would play after like 
a torture scene or like during a murder or something. 100%. I that juxtaposition was so cool. Tell me yeah. about that experience. Yeah. Well, so I just for context, you know, I worked on season two only. Okay. Um, okay. And I was the assistant to the music supervisor, Maggie Phillips. Um, yep. It was amazing. And, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, my experience on the show is like really positive. I loved it. I kind of, as soon as Maggie got hired, I started, I caught up with the first season and I was super immersed in it. And then um, yeah. the music choices are really polarizing. I know a lot of people don't gravitate toward yeah. the show partly because of that, or, you know, th that's the only thing that, they can't get on board with or, or whatever. And then some people are very excited about the music yeah. or obviously individual song selections and yeah. not others. Um, and yeah, I think like that all comes down to the fact that there are multiple people in the room, you know, mm -hmm. where it happens. There's so many different, and that's true on any show. There's like so many decision makers. Uh, obviously there's a showrunner who has mm -hmm. typically has the final say, but um, there's also just so many different brains working on figuring out what music should go where. And um, and it, this show became a particularly eclectic mix of, of songs and that kind of became a defining yeah. trait of its soundtrack. So um, I enjoyed that template since it was already established in the first season. Right, right. So when I started working on it and you know I was assisting Maggie listening for different spots, like it was really fun to imagine how to make that level of impact with a song that like is maybe otherwise incongruous or mm -hmm. um you know and and to how to be irreverent with music that's yeah. kind of the yeah. joy of working on that show <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i've always i've always appreciated that you've i was having so much fun in your imdb today and you've worked on some incredible shows umbrella academy uh, I believe, which is also uh, filmed here in my town, which is kind of ironic. Oh, wow. um, you've worked on a lot of Apple TV stuff, uh, The Shrink Next Door, For All Mankind. Tell me, going back to what we're talking about with Handmaids, who ultimately sets the tone for a show musically? Um, is that your job? Does that come from the creator or the, or the writers? Who says this show is is going to use familiar hits in a, in dark scenes or it's going to be just all brash synthesizers in a comedy or you know what I mean? Like who sets that tone? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's something that like we are constantly navigating on each particular show. It's It's kind of a different setup and there's no like playbook exactly but right. um yeah i guess to unravel what might be a common misconception is that music supervisors are handpicking every single song like mm. that's not oh, okay. the case yeah like we're we're certainly involved in that process and spearheaded sometimes and uh we're also very much involved in clearing the rights to use those songs pitching alternative options when the initial pick either from yeah. the showrunner or from the you know a producer yeah. whoever is not clearable or it's too expensive um so so we're we're certainly involved in all these creative decisions but it can vary on what level depending on the, the spot and so typically though when designing the sound of a show i think some of that starts with the showrunner and with the writers even who mm. are sometimes writing in right. selections to the script Often those are placeholders and don't make it through the journey, but um, sometimes they do. And like, at least by writing in a song, 
they give us an idea of what they're thinking and what their vision is. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of music supervisors would agree that our job is actually really to serve the vision. And, and this is true probably for any member of a film TV crew is to serve the vision of the showrunner and creators. Mm. So, um, you know, often it's like the writer will give that song title in the script and we're like, Oh, that's interesting. Like maybe it's not what I personally would have chosen, Yeah. but, um, it might inspire other ideas from there. If that song isn't really workable or like clearance wise or, or fee wise. Um, so it ends up being this really beautiful tapestry of different people's ideas and um and there's no one formula for like who establishes that but i guess you know more often than not it's the showrunner since they're approving everything that ends up defining the the overall sound with our input and with other members i, I guess in the ideal cases like a showrunner or a writer in this case would would hopefully respect your that you're the subject matter expert maybe and, and you know yeah yeah definitely and and there's like all kinds of um different situations that stem from that i think like we are there's we're hired because they do respect that yeah. you know they wouldn't hire a music supervisor if they didn't want our input yeah. um and it's just kind of a, a mutual respect that we have to listen to each other's ideas and often that's like a super collaborative process like i've I've worked on shows where we have like a collaborative Spotify playlist. We're both adding to it. It's like, it's a really open dialogue throughout the season. And then other times it's more like, you know, they know what they want and that's totally fair. And then I'm, I'm here to support that and to try to execute it for them. Do you, Um, do you like working with a template? Like you said, you came in on the second season of Handmaid's. So it was already established that they were doing this, this interesting concept, but do you like working with a template or do you like to get, and and does this ever happen where you see a TV show and you get to decide if it's going to have music that's bespoke and composed for it, or that it's going to use these, uh, you know, paradoxical type of syncs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously sort of just on a personal level, I think it's, especially gratifying to be a part of defining that sound like that's that's really a big part of the creative work um not just individual song choices but like the overarching vibe and Mm -hmm. and yeah like being a part of the original tracks that are created for a show um, sure that's that's always a, a really compelling part of the job but i also don't mind coming in on a second season because often it's it is because the showrunner or or producers are interested in redefining at least on some small level what the sound was like maybe they didn't have a great uh experience with the music supervisor in the first season or maybe they just wanted to take it into a different direction and and so usually it's not devoid of that challenge but it's on a smaller scale um in your opinion is it and i'll go and move on from this topic in a second but in your opinion is it um is it ideal to have a cohesive sound to the project like throughout using this, like let's say you're Stranger Things and you're only using synths or 80s uh, pop songs or, or, you know, versus something where you could use any type of music. Sometimes it's classical, sometimes it's jazz. In your opinion, like what do you prefer? I'm someone who, and this is not because of like my musical tastes or anything. I think it's just the way I'm wired. Mm-hmm. I like working within constraints and parameters because yeah, it just yeah. like my brain 
it, it attracts um, that level of, of work. So yeah. it is fun to, because otherwise there's limitless options, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's almost no uh, intentional, deliberate way to begin finding the right yeah. track if you yeah. have literally everything in the world to yeah. choose from. So I like, I do like working within that kind of a template because there's fewer options and it's like a more manageable task but also because it's like a challenge for your ear. Like, hey, is this song fitting in with what we've already established? Is this kind of like stretching the boundaries of that a little bit? Is that okay? Right. Um, you know, those questions are, are interesting territory to play, play in. Yeah, I, and I think that's so in line with any artist is like having those parameters makes the job more fun, sometimes more difficult. And uh, yeah, I think it's so necessary. Absolutely. Uh, what does music in film and TV mean to you? How do you view music in, in long format as a music supervisor? Is, is, is it there to support the visuals or is it bigger than just background music? Well, I, yeah, I think it's bigger than background music, just background music mm -hmm. um, for sure. I do think it's there to support the visuals, um, at least on a certain level. For instance, uh, film score and TV score, you know, that, and that's adjacent to what I do. Sure. But, you know, like that uh, type of music for the screen is is often there to be a support and not like a featured player mm -hmm. in the, but there are obvious exceptions to that. And, um, and I think like the standard of that you've probably heard of just like, if you notice it, it's not doing its job. That's oh, okay. Like, you, sh you shouldn't notice. I don't think that's always true. Like, I no, actually, yeah, okay, yeah. I good really point. don't. I mean, maybe, maybe in the most compelling moments, if you're really engaged in the story, then you, you know, wouldn't notice specifically like what's happening in the music. Like, you wouldn't be analyzing the chord structure. Or yeah, anything. right. But the, if you're the type of person to do that anyway. But the, the thing is it is adding value to what's on screen. I mean, if you mute any sound, any movie, if you mute the music, it's just not the same movie. And for sure. And that's a huge realization for a lot of composers and music supervisors, I think, when, I mean, sometimes we do start out with a muted clip and we have to add music <laughs> yeah, to it. And that's then it's right. like, well, this could go in so many different oh, directions. Yeah. Uh, and, and then to someone watching it, who's only known it one way, it feels impossible for anything else to have worked, you know? Right, so it's, right. it is this really interesting chicken and egg scenario, but, um, but to answer the overall question, I, I think my, how I feel about music for the screen is that it's like, it's a support to the overall um, story and visuals and, um, you know, as is every department, like costumes, makeup, but, but, it's also its own medium because we listen to music separately from TV. We might, it might have sort of lift out value from the show as a soundtrack yeah. or, you know, as someone who just wants to listen to film score. Yeah. And it's compelling on its own. Well, it's, it's funny you talk about that, that 
you know, concept of if you can hear it, then that, or if you notice it, it's a bad thing. And I, we were talking uh, in our episode in this series last week um, about uh, music for advertising. And one of the okay. things that Christine, I was talking with Christine Leslie, and one of the things she was saying was that like, you often don't want lyrics that are too on the nose. And that's, right. that's what always stands out to me is whenever I'm watching a scene and somebody has found a song that is like, perfectly describing what i'm watching that always bothers me actually it's like yeah it's like hand hand holding me through the process absolutely i mean that's that's a spectrum that i have to navigate all the time yeah like and, and often the request from the editor or from the showrunner might dictate sort of where they want it to fall on that mm -hmm. level like that or you know we provide op usually i'm providing options like right. somewhere in the world of like five to 12 oh, wow. options for any given wow. poll that I'm doing. So, so often I will consider that when it's like a blank slate and I'm like, here's a couple ideas that are like really on the nose lyrically. They, they fit exactly what we're talking about or seeing on screen. And I think that often people do gravitate towards that, even if they'd like to think that they don't. And that's like most of what we see on screen. Yeah. Um, but then Sometimes you can find a song with lyrics that are in total counterpoint to what's happening on screen, which is kind of an amazing trick yeah. in and of itself, because it's it just infuses everything with a lot of irony. Yes. And then there's and then there's obviously so much in between. And that's often where I like to fall for like the most part because I do think that like it's more naturalistic and it's more um it's more interesting if there's like maybe a vague connection between mm. the lyrics in a more poetic or metaphorical sense, but not in like a, here's how you should feel and here's what you should be thinking yeah. on the nose sense. <laughs> yeah. you know? I, I was reading this great article, an interview with a music supervisor that's escaped me now from the movie Spencer with the Princess okay. Diana movie. And okay. there was this end, end scene where Lady Diana is driving away in her convertible and she puts in a cassette and they didn't know what that song was going to be. And so the supervisor was had a bunch of different suggestions. It ended up being All I Need is a Miracle from Mike and the Mechanics, mm. which sounded great. There must be this moment, like for you, when you find something where it's a it's a home run. That must feel so good to just find oh, yeah. the right thing. That is such a good feeling, and that's like where the endorphins come from. Yeah. With this job. <laughs> yeah. And like everything else, though. Though I think there's actually a lot uh, that I do love that I didn't expect to love when I started working in this field. Uh, that's less sexy and glamorous than that. Everything else is still serving those moments you know what i yes. mean like that's that's what keeps me going yeah yeah so and and do you have to uh, um fight for something that you truly believe in has that come to a point where somebody doesn't see your vision yeah that does happen for yeah. sure and that's like a delicate thing because you know i i never go into any situation or any project with an attitude of like i know what's right objectively it's all such a subjective yeah um yeah process but but when i believe strongly in something <laughs> i will fight for it sometimes because it's worth it yeah and and that has occasionally actually achieved a result where like the person who the showrunner or whoever is making that final say will give it another listen and consider it again and they're like sometimes a lot of the time they're like yeah still no i like this other <laughs> thing but then sometimes they're like wow like i actually i'm so glad that you pushed 
push me on this yeah. a little bit because yeah. I, I totally hear that. And, um, so I think, I think that true artists don't believe in subjectivity. That's how I feel <laughs> like <laughs> when I'm picking, like doing something in a mix or picking a, an album cover. I'm like, no, this is objective. This is not. subjective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I understand that feeling. sometimes it just hits 100%. Like yeah. if, it, if it's like one of the first things you're trying and nothing else that you try after that can beat it. Yeah. And you're like, why even bother? Why even bother? <laughs> how did you get into this business? Yeah. Um, Kind of through a very, I guess like one of the, there are several routes and I think um, that's one of the interesting things about music supervision is people come from all different yeah, yeah. backgrounds within the music industry, film industry, something completely different. Right. There's no like degree per se. So. Okay. But, but yeah, I, um, I moved to LA about five years ago, um, knowing that music supervision was one of a handful of different things that I was interested in pursuing my background is i'm a musician and composer and you know i still do those things uh it's part of my life and i knew i didn't want to give up that but i was also interested in pursuing an adjacent career in the industry and so music supervision was one of a handful of ideas that i didn't frankly know anything about at the time other than watching movies because i love i love film and tv and i was noticing the credit when I got to the end of a movie, right. like, oh, someone's job is overseeing the music in this film. Like, that's something I would love to that's do. That's very cool, yeah. Which I'm sure is a pretty typical answer for a lot of people. But <laughs> um, but then I moved to L.A. kind of on a leap of faith that I'd find something uh, in the music industry. I'm from New York City, so the other option I thought was to move. This is right after I graduated college, so the other option I thought was, like, I could move back to New York and live with my parents, but I'm not sure that would be good for anyone. And, um, you know, I want this adventure um, and experience in a new city. I was actually, at the time, I was dating someone who lived in LA. And um, so it felt that for that reason, too, like a yeah. good idea. And yeah. um, anyway, the process of, of making that choice was difficult, but I, I came here, spent about a month trying to take any meetings I could get in a very like scrappy and <laughs> like the way I look back on it, very green way, yeah. frankly. Um, and, uh, but it, it did connect me to uh, a couple of really great people, including Maggie Phillips, um, who did the handmade sale yeah. and all these, a lot of the shows you mentioned. Um, she through truly like six degrees of separation. <laughs> she was like, her sisters, her sister went to camp with my friend's ex or something like it was like oh my goodness that, that uh, tenuous and so that got you in the door. Luckily, that got me wow. in the door. She needed she needed an intern at the time. Uh, this was right before she got Handmaid's Tale, and so I I you know was like I'm at your service. I would love to intern, and uh, so I was doing that five days a week. It was like full time internship. Um, and I immediately sort of gravitated toward this field and I was excited by it. And um, I learned a lot in just a few months. And then her business was growing so rapidly that she needed more help and um, ended up hiring me as her assistant at that Amazing. time. Um, and then it kind of continued from there. I'm happy to go on from there. But it's well, been a, it's I been I'm actually thing. curious because um, 
I saw also that you worked with Yay Team, and yes. I just read Amanda's book, which is fantastic. Oh, so yeah, that, that, that's, that's crazy. crazy. I'm looking through all your credits, and there's just so many people because I, I was familiar with Maggie's work, and then I saw Amanda as well. So I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, no, it is, and it takes a team to make all that happen, which is I feel so fortunate to have been brought into both of those teams, um, Maggie's Deep Cut and mm -hmm. Amanda's Yay Team. Um, so yeah, after about a year and a half with Maggie. Amanda was one of the other people I met in that month, uh, wow. again, through a very similar randomness. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, she and I kept in touch here and there and saw each other at, uh, you know, industry-related events uh, while I was working with Maggie. And then she started her own company, Yay Team. Uh, I think it was November of 2019. She had left Neophonic, where she'd worked okay. for a long time. And, um, and I reached out to her around then, like, again, very lucky timing. And yeah. uh, she's like, yeah, I, I'm already pretty busy with this new venture and, and I'm sure I could use a coordinator. So I started working for her at that, or a few months later um, and then continued for, I think, two and a half years or so, wow. um, which was amazing. I learned so much. I started taking on a lot more responsibility, really seeing these projects through from start to finish and and sort of dipping my feet in all the different aspects of the job, which she was, and both of both Maggie and Amanda were always so generous about sharing their knowledge and, and expertise and allowing for opportunities to be creative, not just, you know, booking meetings and grabbing coffee. Like that wasn't that wasn't the vibe. So yeah. I feel super grateful to have been mentored by by them. Um and then and then I became independent. I like went off on my own about a year ago. Wow, that's pretty yeah. pretty brave. Yeah, nerve wracking. It was, it was to be honest, it was. It was another leap of faith because I I had one gig that sort of was the impetus for doing that. Um, I mean, it was something I was considering before that, but mm -hmm. it was like I had one concrete opportunity to make that happen and then figure it out from there. And that's that's kind of how it's been. Well. I guess it, your first two mentors were entrepreneurs, right? People who started their own shop. So that's probably exactly. pretty inspiring. It was super inspiring to see how, yeah. And these are people who I like became like very familiar with on a personal level. And like, they spoke to me about the challenges of running a small business. And, you know, I got to see that firsthand and, and it was inspiring because it was like, well, I don't, I never saw myself as like a, business owner per se like that's never <laughs> been a goal that i had for myself but um but starting off on your own being independent and freelance that's like the freedom it, that comes with that is really appealing my parents are both musicians and you know never worked for companies so oh, like i, I wow. kind of had that um that's very cool that upbringing as well yeah um I, I'm, uh, that's really interesting about Amanda. Her book uh, we've talked about on this show previously, Thinking in Sync, I believe it's called. And yeah. um, it, it's it's a great resource. Like, I mean, it's actually, you don't, I don't know, I'm sure it's a good resource for music supervisors or, or want to, people who want to become a music supervisor, but it's great resources for labels and artists who just kind of want like to peek behind your curtain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ab no, absolutely. I think that's, that's Amanda's target audience with that book. Is yeah. Independent artists, I think one of the main messages is that independent artists would be better served by finding a home for their music with a trusted 
partner, like a, a label or publisher, but if not like a licensing company, hmm. third party licensing company or sync agent, you know, someone to represent them because those people already have their foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They, you know, there, and there's a lot of nuance to that, but, um, but that is like a, a big takeaway, I think. And well, um, it, yeah, my, my listeners are like now like banging on their iPods and asking me to ask you, how do we get our music onto shows? Because this is like, this has been so interesting, but let's talk about this field from the artist perspective and, and, and record label perspective, because our listeners are mostly record labels, independent, small labels yeah. in a lot of cases representing a, a one artist or maybe 10 artists. Um, yeah. Someone who is looking to get their music in the hands of someone like you uh, where do we begin? Because I think what happens is when we Google this, uh, we're familiar with music supervisors because we see it in the credits as well. But when we Google this, there's a lot of these sites that pop up. Some of them are exclusive. Some of them are non-exclusive. And yeah. and it's like some people say that, you know, sign a deal with me and I'll get you on all these great shows. And it's intimidating. It's scary. Where do we begin? Well, uh, yeah, that's that is a tough question because there's there's so many different possibilities but one possibility is to ignore what i just said and to just you know really power through as an independent artist because there there are ways to do that and it's you know there's something to be said for that to be your own agent but yeah. um if you're looking specifically to up your game in the sync world i think you might be depending on the music like mm -hmm. you might be best served submitting so at least some of your music to a library, which uh, contains thousands of tracks, but is okay. easily accessible and immediately becomes a resource for hundreds, thousands of editors around the world who are just pulling directly from libraries right. because their shows have a studio who has a blanket deal with that library, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. That makes or, sense. Or to sign, you know, with a record label or publishing company that would certainly be pitching your wares. Um, obviously that's not an easy thing to just yeah. land. So yeah. um, there's these third party companies that don't actually take ownership over what you're creating. So you still retain all your rights, but they just represent you as a sink in the sink space okay. alone. And those, and like you were saying, those can come in the form of an exclusive deal a non-exclusive deal there are various deal points in addition to that that like inform how sort of um how much you're restricted by yeah, signing that's fair with one. Yeah. and um and i think like if you're someone who is not who's just starting in this world like personally i i would advocate for a, a non-exclusive deal because that way you're still able to uh, pitch on your own. You might be able to sign with a second non-exclusive company, sure. take more chances. Some people caution against this because if your music is pitched by two different companies for the same opportunity, then there's a bit of a, a weird, like, who got there first? Yeah. Vibe. But, but I think the chances of that happening are super low. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that and, well, and you're going to end up 
Yeah. I just want to interrupt you for a second because a lot of the sure. times when, when these websites and people talk about the difference between exclusive and non-exclusive, they actually blame you and they say that okay. a music supervisor isn't going to, they're going to want to make sure they're getting the best price or that they're not being pitched the same song twice. So mm-hmm. let, like you're saying, that's not really a huge problem. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, I, I think I've seen it happen two or three times total. Okay. Where, yeah. I mean, and, and maybe more than that, but only two or three times when the song that was pitched twice was actually selected. So right. Then, yeah. it, then it becomes a, an issue, but most of the time it's not going to be selected. Yeah. It's such a, a, a low batting average, you know? Exactly. So I think that um, that's, that's not, that shouldn't be an artist's primary concern when making that decision, in my opinion. I, you had mentioned music libraries, and I'm wondering if you're comfortable mentioning any of the music libraries that pop into mind that, that you've used or some of your colleagues have used. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's so many out there and mm-hmm. a lot of really good ones. Uh, some of my favorites include APM, which is, okay. I think, one of the very biggest. It's owned, I think, by Sony and oh, okay. Universal as well. Um, and they they are like an association of various other libraries. So they have just... Oh, a I massive see. catalog. Um, then there's uh, there's BMG has its own production yep. music library, yep. which is great. Um, Five Alarm is another one okay. that I like a lot. There's Crucial Music, which is a smaller, like in terms of the fact, I think it's run by just one uh, or two people work there. It's oh, like cool. a very mom and pop feel, but they do have a big library and, and a lot of good music there. Um, and there's... Uh, there's Universal actually has its own Universal production music. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, very cool. No, that's great to have some just some names of because again, I mean, music libraries are another thing that you Google, and it's just you, you're getting so many that pop up. Oh my gosh, I know, and and a lot of them are like royalty free, which is not something that um, I oh, right. necessarily advocate. Yes, yes, for, you know, yeah. but these ones are are royalties that's right and and the sync agents just to clarify that would be a a scenario where there you you were talking about a lot of them aren't um taking any sort of ownership or any sort of publishing but probably just a percentage of what the sync fee is is that correct exactly so taking like a a cut of the upfront fee okay i know most of those deals tend to skew 50 50 like a label deal would um there are companies out there that are doing more artist-friendly splits, 60-40, even, right. maybe even some 80-20. But, but even uh, at 50-50, the artist is getting, generally is getting 100% of the of the PROs, right? Like a, Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm sure there are some exceptions, but for the most part, the those companies are just taking like that 50% of the sync fee, mm-hmm. which is the upfront, mm-hmm. and then... Um, as an artist and a songwriter, actually, you'll be added to the cue sheet when that TV show airs and any time it airs in the future. And if it's a streamer, you know, I guess it's a continuous process where you're uh, you're going to collect as yeah. a songwriter and publishing entity yeah. Yeah. for your songs. Yeah, I, I the only like significant success I've ever had in my very long career is with uh, the Degrassi um, show. Wow. Post Drake. So it was like after Drake. (laughs) Uh, But it was like the sync fee was great, but um, the like 
I was, I probably could still see royalties today. And that was like maybe 12 years ago. So, and I'm sure like if that show is ever played in Indonesia or something that you see it trickle through eventually. So that is such yeah. a cool component that a, peop a lot of people forget about. Absolutely. And it, you know, sometimes that can be really significant money. Yeah. So well, like, when you add it up for sure. When you, when you add it up, yeah. exactly. So it's not worth seizing it. You should definitely register your songs. With yeah, that's right. And, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. Um, how, uh, how often are you using, this might be an impossible question, but how often are you using unknown indie music versus more popular major label tracks? Like is indie music something that is commonly used in, in television shows and stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's it's great. like, it's pretty ubiquitous. Um, and the reason for that is even like a big show, it, it has a limited music budget. Okay. Music, big, big music recognizable songs are expensive like mm -hmm. uh more expensive than a lot of people might think so so that's quickly eaten up when you sure. have a couple of recognizable songs in your episode so even a big budget show will need to fill out the rest with indie music maybe some library music some mm. combination thereof um so there's there's certainly room for all different levels and then there's of course smaller budget projects like indie films and documentaries and stuff that often will have smaller budgets and can't afford anything recognizable or just one or two throughout the whole documentary or yeah. series. So the rest has to be filtered through the libraries and, and the indie music community. Uh, in another interview we were talking um, that I was doing with a sync agent, we were talking about that era of the WB network, you know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years yeah. ago when there was um, the Gilmore Girls, but also that big, the OC and One Tree Hill yeah. when they were, yeah. they were breaking artists. And uh, do you see that happening anymore? That like an indie artist is like, is becoming popular because of a show? Absolutely. I think that, that's cool. And, and that era is definitely, I, I think is kind of the beginning of when that was like really starting to happen mm -hmm. for, for artists. But I think it's continued through today and and maybe now more than ever licensing is kind of well I, this is a slightly separate thing but I, I think licensing accounts for a lot of artists a lot a big part of their income yeah but but to answer your question more directly they a lot of them do get a huge amount of exposure from a placement and as a music supervisor that is like so gratifying to see that happen oh that's because, cool yeah i mean coming from a musician's background myself, like I, I completely appreciate like that's sometimes the break that someone needs. Mm. And even if it's somewhat of a background use, it's can still be a huge asset to their career. Um, and it's fun for me because I know that it's going to happen in advance of the <laughs> air date. So, so I'll like sometimes look at an artist's streaming numbers or their, oh, yeah. <laughs> their social following yeah. beforehand. Yeah. And then I'll check back in a few months and see yeah. what's happened. And it's, it's well, exciting. back in the day, well, even when I had a placement, but back in the, in the, um, that WB era, that was pre Shazam. So, you okay. know, nowadays it's super easy to find out. Absolutely. I think, I mean, just, sort of conversationally speaking to a lot of my friends who are not even in, in the business, like that's how so many people are discovering new music these days. Oh, yeah. Shazamming yeah. their favorite TV shows. Well, I, I, I would say that probably once, a couple times a year, it still happens to me where 
the closing credits are rolling on a television show. I'm like, what tune is this? Like, what is this? And, and, you know, even though like I have my, I'm not a passive music listener. I, I know how to discover music, but it's still a great feeling where you're like, I don't know uh, who yeah. this is. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause it's like a reminder that there's so much great music out there that it's impossible to know all of it. And, yeah. and here's like, it's delivered to you on this. Yes on this pattern from a TV show that you already love. So that's right. A, yeah. And that nice was, that must feel good too, as a curator to be like, trust me, you're going to love this. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 How do you, okay. I want to ask you, before I ask you this, this other question, I just want to, on this topic for our, our, our listeners, how, if you were, I know you're a musician and if you had your own label or you were just representing your career and you wanted to get into sync, knowing what you know, how would you do it? How would you, how would you start to build up that revenue stream? Because for us as labels, it's the same as for independent artists. We play live. That's a, a bit of money. We have merch. That's a bit of money. We have streaming. That's a little bit of money we have. Uh, and then we, ideally we have okay. sync. So how do you, how would you start to build up that revenue stream? Definitely. Um, I mean, I, I do think there's some overlap with what I was saying about just finding a, a trusted company to mm -hmm. work with. That's Library. Like, yep. Yeah. Well, so it depends on the kind of music. I okay. Think. Like, okay. Uh, I, I mean, there's libraries that have mainstream pop sounding music. They have country, they have okay. all of those things, but they also have a lot of unique, um, you know, Irish uh, folk mixed with like EDM beats and right. stuff like that yeah. where, you know, I think if you're making esoteric music, you might be best served in a library because um, that's where I as a music supervisor tend to look for that kind of thing. Because if it's something that like needs to be described as like a fusion of two or more genres and, and it's unique enough, I yeah. will probably not bother all the people I'd normally ask, <laughs> like, hey, do you have something? You like just this? use the just, algorithm. I'm assuming I'll strike out for this. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, and, and libraries have so many tracks that yeah. it's more likely. Um, if you're making more accessible, conventionally like marketable music, mm -hmm. then a library is still a good route, possibly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's probably easier to get lost in the vast sea of, of tracks they have. Yeah. But like I said, there are editors who are just pulling from that all the time. Um, but you could also go with the route of finding a sync agent who um, doing some research, probably asking music supervisors if you know any uh, or other musicians you work with who they have these relationships with because it's like hard to know from the outside who a music supervisor is hitting up. Um, right. And, and the answer to that question is there's so many companies. So like the good news is there are a lot of outlets for you to try and submit to. Um, and so that's probably what I would okay. do. Now, um, and yeah. And, and and like some music supervisors say, please don't contact me. Other music supervisors like to be open. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm definitely open. I'm not. I never tell people to not yeah, contact yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I also usually am very honest about the fact that I am inundated with submissions and mm -hmm. that you know I I can't listen to everything that's sent to me. I just don't have the bandwidth and I can't provide feedback. Yeah, of really. course. So, of course. So I will do my best, uh, especially if like the 
written email that accompanies the link is compelling for some reason. Like it seems right for a project I'm working on, actually, where it's like personal enough that it, it feels, you know, worthy of a response versus like a form letter. Yeah. Um, but I also, I can't get to everything. So, of course. so that's kind of my personal stance on it. How do you, I'm just curious, how do you search for new music? Do you stick to the, the formal channels that you were talking about? Or are you ever like, you know, just kind of deep diving on, on Spotify or, or even Bandcamp? Or, or, or is, is the job too busy and too quick to, to, to do something casual like that? No, that's a, that's a great question because um, it's sort of two-pronged. As like a music listener and appreciator, apart from my strict role as supervisor, I'm on Spotify and Bandcamp all the time. Okay, cool. Uh, and I and what I end up discovering through those dives yeah. often does come into play when I'm working. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, but then when I'm working and I have like an hour to deliver options, often <laughs> yeah. there are so many other factors at stake, like the budget, the, the you know, and so I'm more often maybe looking through pitches that have been sent to me from those trusted companies yes. um but there there's no like fine there's no boundaries really so sometimes like i'll be able to listen openly on spotify for a spot and that's like that could include rec recognizable songs and it could include stuff that like nobody's heard of but i've found yeah on one of my listening sessions um the, my final question is how we as labels and as independent artists can be prepared from when we get that email from you, which I imagine artists just love to see your name in yeah. the inbox. But um, so when you, if you have a little bit of time or maybe if you're in a hurry, but if you are contacting someone on Bandcamp that you've just loved their track, what are you hoping that they have right away when it comes to um, the rights and, and the clearances, but also even from a technical standpoint with audio files, et cetera? Yeah, no, those are the two most important things is having um so to start with audio the okay. uh high-res high audio it's not always needed right away but eventually for the most part you'll end up needing to get to replace an mp3 with a wave sure. or an aif um often even right away we'll need an instrumental version of a vocal song mm -hmm. because uh what, what we're doing sometimes with background music is weaving it in and out of dialogue so an editor who's doing that will actually be like muting the vocal track at some point and then unmuting the instrumental track and then going between the two. Right. So, uh, and sometimes it, it will be a deal breaker if you don't have that. Yeah, I um, bet. Less often, but generally stems, like the rest of the instrumental, you know, instrument stems will be helpful, but I don't necessarily think you need to have that ready to go. It's not a front. deal breaker. Okay. Usually not. Okay. Um, at least in TV and film, I think in ads, which is not really my world. I think sure. it's much more of a yeah. thinker. Um, but uh, and in terms of clearance, uh, this is this is very important. Is like knowing where all of the sort of bodies are buried, you know, and having <laughs> having that information very right. accessible. And like you asked, ideally, what am I looking for? And and the ideal response from an artist is like. Oh, I own everything. I can I can administer uh, everything one stop, which yeah. means like a hundred percent on both the recording and the publishing side. Right. So even if you co-wrote the song, as long as that co-writer, you know, has 
allowed you to represent their share uh, on for a sync situation, then you can uh, claim that you can represent one stop, and that's like saves me a lot of time hunting that other person down and trying to email them over yeah. and over again when I'm like up against a tight deadline. Right. Yeah. No, that's all very helpful, and that's that's something I think you know. A lot of us could really spend a weekend in getting all that stuff together, especially the instrumentals. Uh, so many people think that that's a, a nice to have, but it really is a need to have because when you listen, like you said, when you listen to a television show or a movie and you listen to a track, if you know the track, you know that there's no bridge happening here or what happened or how is that chorus playing so quickly after an only, you know, like, yeah. and so you, you can tell those things and that that's where really where it's being used. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, it, I'd say more and more, even just in the five years I've been doing this, I've seen that become more of a must. Okay. Um, that's like, okay. that's it's trended in that direction, especially on unscripted stuff for some reason, but even, unscripted um it's like it's really important to have that available well and i think with a lot of us not recording necessarily in a high-end studio on a on a console to tape like there's really no reason you shouldn't have the instrumental i mean it's as simple right. as bouncing the mix with the one track muted so it... exactly um thank you so much julian for opening the doors to this world um all of us musicians and labels wish we had a roommate like you who could, <laughs> could help us pay the rent but you know it, it's so great to be able to talk to you and to get to hear from your perspective so thank you so much for doing this it's so my pleasure thank you scott for having me and and your questions are spot on and it's awesome. a pleasure to, to speak with you to find out more about the resources and interviews we have on the world of sync licensing, go to otherrecordlabels.com slash sync. I hope that you've got a lot out of today's interview with Julian. And remember, we just launched our sync licensing course. It's a micro course. It's affordable. It's also part of our everything bundle, but it's a standalone course as well. If you want to go deeper on this subject for your record label, go to otherrecordlabels.com slash courses to learn more about our new sync licensing course.